This is Frontiers in Economic Research. I'm your host, Brendan Cunningham, from Eastern Connecticut State University. This is Episode 2, recorded October 22, 2017. This podcast is a brief summary of recent research in economics, intended primarily for scholars. I will include links to the papers in the show notes for those looking to follow up with a particular paper. If you have any feedback, please send email to feedback at fer.fyi or visit fer.fyi where you can leave comments. In this episode, I host a guest who discusses regulation of e-cigarettes. I also summarize a few key NBER working papers which were released last week. This collection had a significant number of papers on health economics. There will be one audio file containing all the working papers and one shorter sub-episode which covers developments in macro. I hope you enjoy. My guest today is John Buckle. He's a postdoctoral associate at Yale University in the School of Public Health. Um, and John, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. And great. And I uh, asked you to come on because I saw a paper you had co-authored with uh, Joachim Marti and Jody Sindler, also at Yale. Uh, the title of the paper was should flavors be banned in e-cigarettes? And just as kind of a layperson when it comes to public health, I've, I've kind of noticed just when I'm walking around uh, this, this new type of product, I, I guess sometimes people refer to it as, as vaping or um, there are these e-cigarettes that people are using. Um, it kind of seemed to initially slowly roll out. You know, when I was in the mall, I would see people trying to sell these things and then, uh, but recently really seems to have taken off. Um, and, you know, I think just generally speaking, the, uh, the consumer behavior as it pertains to smoking is really a fascinating issue in the field of economics. It, it kind of combines a lot of different important topics like externalities, you know, elasticity of demand, health, uh, that sort of thing. So I was, I was wondering if you could just maybe first, if you had any comments about why e-cigarettes are an important issue and and why the question of the, the flavors that consumers can choose from is an important issue when it comes to e-cigarettes? Sure. So I think it's really important to kind of um, lay out the general context here, um, which is the larger problem of, of tobacco. So tobacco remains the largest avoidable cause of death in the U.S., um, each year, it's responsible for around 480,000 deaths, of which about 10% are due to secondhand smoke. It's a huge economic problem. It's responsible for about 30, uh, $330 billion lost to the economy. Um, and that's roughly split 50-50 between medical costs and losses in productivity. So it's, it's a, it, tobacco is a huge problem. And um, we kind of made a lot of progress. So since the 60s, where the smoking rate amongst adults was up, kind of in the 40s. Um, over the course of time, it's decreased. So it's now seeing around 15%, which is great. And part of that progress is due to some very successful tobacco intervention policies, such as, you know, taxes, uh, public education, advertising bans, smoke-free policies, etc. Um, so one of the things that we have tried to do to try to curtail some of the issues with smoking is introduce what we call nicotine replacement, or NRT. So these are things I'm sure your listeners will be familiar with, things like gum, patches, nicotine inhalers, etc. And these are great, but they haven't been enormously popular or successful. And this is really where we start to think about e-cigarettes, because e-cigarettes have entered the market, as you said, almost kind of, you know, through the back door. They just seem to have appeared, and, and certainly if you look at the growth figures, they've been exponential in, in the last few years um, and they've proven really popular and to the extent that at least we think um, that they might be less harmful to smokers they're potentially a really important lever in you know the battle with tobacco um, and really that's where that's where we are and and flavors of course are a key issue because you know they're just central in the demand for tobacco products in general um, you know, particularly with e-cigarettes. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, I mean, it would seem that 
as in when it comes to any other product, the more options you give consumers, uh, you know, other things equal, the better off they're going to be, the greater the appeal for the product. Um, but, but what are some of the kind of pr- more prominent issues in the e-cigarette debates? Is there a reason why um, flavors would be controversial or uh, are there other issues people are debating since this is a relatively new product? What, what are some of the things uh, people are looking into? Um, yeah, I guess with anything, um, it's a very kind of multifaceted debate. There are a lot of moving parts and particularly given the enormous growth in such a short space of time, hasn't really given the academic community an enormous amount of time to to kind of digest all of that. But, I mean, some of the issues that stand out include, you know, the healthiness of e-cigarettes. So, first of all, are these things healthier than combustible cigarettes? Uh, And if they are, to what extent are they healthy? And spills over into individuals' risk perceptions of these products as well. So even though the scientific evidence base might say one thing, What's important to economists is down on the ground and where consumer perceptions are concerned. You know, what are the messages people are getting through media and social media? And what do people believe? What do people choose to believe? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, another big issue in debate has been whether or not they can help smokers quit. Mm-hmm. And again, there, there, are, there is evidence on, on kind of both sides of the fence here. Um, and again, that's been contested, but to the extent that they might be helpful in, in helping smokers quit, they might help take some of the, this huge burden of tobacco. Um, and related to that, but slightly different, is whether or not they can just serve as a harm reduction device. Um, so whether or not you believe that they're helpful in helping smokers to quit, if you can get smokers to switch from what is a more harmful to a less harmful product, can you, you know, do a lot of good to a lot of people. And actually, there's a, a very nice paper last week by David Levy and colleagues in tobacco control that looked at the effects of, you know, what happens if you um, got all smokers to switch to e-cigarettes. And their optimistic estimation was over the next 10 years, you could save 6.6 million premature deaths um, if you got everyone to switch. So, wow. again, it's an, a new, um, uh, yeah, yeah, another, another prominent issue. Um Patterns of use are another big one. So people talk about, um, I, I very much like this phrase, of puff topography. So how are people <laughs> using these things? You know, are they, are they, are they taking big puffs, smaller puffs? Are they holding them in their lungs longer? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's the composition of, uh, the vapor that they inhale with these devices? Can you turn them up and down with the voltage? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, other issues, you know, related to patterns of use are things like risk compensation. Mm-hmm. So do people use e-cigarettes more if they think they're less harmful? Mm-hmm. So actually, you know, if you switch from combustible cigarettes to an e-cigarette, you think, you know, great, this thing's completely harmless. I'm going to smoke the thing all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and related to both of those things, I think, is the issue that, um, I mean, this is kind of anecdotal, but with a tobacco uh, cigarette, you have a kind of a natural end, whereas with an e-cigarette, you kind of don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know friends of mine that use these things that say they sit around using it for 20 minutes before someone taps them on the shoulder and says, oh, you know, you know, you know you've been using that for 20 minutes. So wow. all those kinds of issues, are, are, you know, and, and then you get into things like, you know, are people using these to avoid smoking bans in public? And yeah. mm-hmm. so a lot of this there. Mm-hmm. Next, I think, and this is probably one of the um, issues that had most of the attention, which is, are these products attractive to youth and to young people Mm -hmm. concerns there are what are the dangers posed to young people's um you know their health first and foremost from using these things Mm -hmm. second of all if there is what we call a gateway effect so if young people that would never have tried or used a combustible cigarette will use them if they first use an e-cigarette it's kind of like a stepping stone Mm -hmm. to using them um and of course in and around those debates and related to them, and what our paper is focusing on, is flavours. So, of course, you know, we know from tobacco cigarettes that kind of fruit and candy flavours are very attractive to, to, to youth and, and young adults. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually with e-cigarettes, we've seen, you know, the emergence of over 7,000 flavours. So everything from 
wow. know, peach and cherry to, you know, those Smurf or, you know, rainbow unicorn or all sorts of crazy <laughs> things. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, you know, and that's, and that's, and so we, you know, in, in the paper, we focus entirely on the adult population, but it's very difficult to have a debate about the flavors of e-cigarettes without at least mentioning youth and young adults. Um, sure. Yes, but, I, you know, so um, that was actually a very nice um, systematic review of um, ENDS, electronic um, nicotine delivery system, or, or e-cigarettes. Um, this is um, Glasser and others, it's 2017, uh, American Journal of Preventive Medicine, which I'm yeah, happy to share with the, with the listeners, but it's a very nice overview of, of some of the issues and guide to the literature and things. So. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, the, the, I think the risk compensation topic is is very fascinating. I don't, I don't, as I said, I'm a novice when it comes to this field, but I remember hearing something about how when the industry introduced, um, I, I guess it was called light cigarettes, um, the, 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 the smokers would actually um, inhale more uh, smoke somehow. Um, they would they would actually pull on the cigarette um, stronger in order to compensate for the I guess how much was being filtered out and it sort of had perverse Im- impact on smokers um, which um, is something you don't necessarily uh, think about but um, so I'm curious what are some of the regulatory options for policymakers I mean how how are the e-cigarettes regulated. Um, you know, is it any different than the way uh, combustible cigarettes are regulated? Are they are there other regulatory issues that uh, are kind of in the works? What, what what's your view of that? Um, so, um, it's sort of broadly, um, there are kind of two tiers of, or several tiers of regulation. Um, so the FDA, as of um, 2009 under the Family Smoking uh, Prevention Tobacco Control Act um, gained the right to regulate um, tobacco products in general, so included cigarettes, e-cigarettes, hooker, etc. Um, as of 2016, they deemed the right to regulate um, e-cigarettes and cigarettes, uh, which included um, flavours uh, as well as some of the other um, attributes of those products. Um, so they now have the power to impose and are considering um, flavours in particular but other, of course we had the big announcement about um, reducing levels of nicotine recently mm-hmm. um, so the FDA have, have sort of broad control nationally um, there are of course other policy makers at other tiers that are able and have imposed regulations on on cigarettes and e-cigarettes particularly flavors so for example um you know there have been flavors bans in cambridge massachusetts and uh, a very amusingly named uh, yolo county in california (laughs) imagine that's full of young young people and hedonism um but yeah um so it's it's a it's a bit of a mixing pot, and you know, and kind of elsewhere um, around the world. If we look at you know, Europe have just announced a ban on menthol combustible cigarettes. Canada have just announced a ban on uh, menthol combustible cigarettes as well. Um, so yeah, so so part of the reason that we were interested in this paper is that there is um, there's the the opportunity for action on the part of the FDA, and there has been movement both internationally and you know nationally within um you know municipalities and counties in across the, the country so very, very interesting very, and as i was thinking about this topic too just in and some of the uh kind of unknowns you mentioned earlier about uh you know it's a new product and and what are the the health effects of it it, it occurred to me that potentially looking at the insurance market might might be a way of figuring out at least what the insurers anticipate in terms of health effects, you know, is are e-cigarettes uh, treated the same as combustible cigarettes in terms of, um, you know, health insurance or life insurance and, and that sort of thing, because, you know, the actuaries must be looking at this thing and, 
trying to figure out, you know, do we, do we offer, you know, a lower premium on life insurance if, if someone's using these instead of combustibles? So, um, in any event, that, that's just my own kind of thought that had occurred to me, uh, as I was, I was thinking about this topic. So in, in your research, um, I guess you, you do some, and, and I think what's, what's really compelling about your research is you actually do some sort of, um, experimental analysis of, um, different developments in the e-cigarette, uh, industry and, and what that might mean for consumers. And, and can you tell me a little bit about your effort and, and why it's a good, maybe a good approach for, for analyzing e-cigarettes? Yeah, the discrete choice experiment we used. Um, so um, the, um, the choice experiments have been increasingly popular, certainly in the field of health economics, but in particular in, in the field of tobacco control. Um, and uh, they're kind of well suited to the task. Actually, there's a nice quote from um, Dan McFadden in his chapter in the Handbook of Choice Modeling, which kind of says these methods tend to work best when um, there are you know, only a few options that are familiar to respondents and that are well described. And I think in the case of um, tobacco products, and particularly cigarettes to smokers, it's probably in keeping with, with that. And, and following from that, we've seen quite a few applications of this method, both you know, in the States and internationally, that, that, that you know, seem to be giving quite sensible, plausible, plausible answers. Um, mm-hmm. And the other nice thing about these experiments is that as the analyst, you have um, you know, experimental control over what you're doing. So if you want to ask policy questions, for example, on flavours, you can design the experiment to ask that explicitly. Um, you can also just you know decide on the populations of interest that you want to then go and go and study. So they're really kind of good things that perhaps you might not have with large data sets elsewhere. Um, sometimes, of course, you might, but sometimes you might not. Um, you know, and in this case, for example, when you're looking at FDA specific policies, um, it's it's difficult to apply things like diff in diff if you are applying things at a national level because there's no state variation. Mm-hmm. So again, that's another another area in which the DC is quite a nice solution to, to, to possibly an issue. Um, so yeah, and actually there's there's a nice um, systematic review which is uh, Regme and others in um, pharmacoeconomics this year. So and again, I'm happy to share with the with the with the listeners. Great, great. So when you um, <clears throat> conduct this discrete choice uh, experimental analysis, did you find sort of some uh, key results that uh, you'd like to highlight? Were there were there things you uh, didn't anticipate when you uh, conducted the experiments, or or things that uh, stood out to you after you'd kind of collected the data and analyzed it? Yeah, I think we were quite surprised to find that actually the 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 impacts or the predicted impacts of the the flavour bans um, vary quite substantially depending on the specification. And again, this kind of goes back a little bit to the to the moving parts discussion. Um, so you know, do you apply flavour bans to both products to products separately? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what are people's preferences in terms of the healthfulness of the products? To what extent are they willing to substitute between products? All those kind of questions. But, um, so, yeah, and, and what we found was that these um, would kind of favour combustible cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Others would favour e-cigarettes. And you know, some of them would favour what we call the opt-out or, or none of these. Mm-hmm. Um, a big finding we found was heterogeneity is a huge consideration here. So when you look at the models um, at the sample level, um, they can suggest that in general adults don't particularly favour um, non-tobacco flavoured. Um, but actually when you dig into it a little bit more, you find that actually that's, that average effect is a combination of some people not liking those by a long way, but also um, some you know, some positive utility. So there are subsets of people that actually quite like these flavours, and that's really important for trying to kind of you know understand people's behaviour and predict the impacts of policy. So when you build that into the model, um, we find we get kind of depending on the specification of the policy, kind of four to eleven percent swings in market share based on different policy configurations. 
Um, and finally, we we found that the, the uh, in, in terms of public health, um, probably the optimum policy would be to ban menthol in combustible cigarettes. However, we would like to attach uh, some important caveats to that. Um, first being, of course, we're looking at the adult population earlier. Uh, sorry, the adult population only. Mm-hmm. Secondly, um, assumed in that, so that, that prediction um, was that many more people would go to um, e-cigarettes. So embedded in that is the idea that e-cigarettes are indeed more healthy, or at least healthier than combustible cigarettes. Um, and the third thing, of course, is that, you know, that we're keen to point out that that's not a, a out-and-out policy recommendation. That's mm-hmm. just saying, you know, here are, so the point of the paper is to say, look, here are some possible policy options that the FDA could implement, and here's what happens, and, you know, this one might be the best if you want to pursue goal X, and other policies might be better if you want to pursue goal Y. So, um, yeah, it's not a policy recommendation, I think, is the take-out message. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think I think the research is absolutely fascinating. I, I mean, uh, certainly people's health is is a very very critical issue, and and to be conducting research that can illuminate things which could potentially en- enhance health outcomes um, is really important in a lot of different ways. So I commend you for for working on this topic and and for the insights you you and your co-authors have been able to contribute. So and um, I'd like to just thank you for coming on the show. Um, and um, wish you the best of luck with with all of your research endeavors. Oh, thank you very much for having me, Brendan. And uh, yeah, pleasure, absolute pleasure. Thank you. All right, great. As I mentioned earlier, my guest's paper was entitled "Should Flavors Be Banned in E-Cigarettes: Evidence on Adult Smokers and Recent Quitters from a Discrete Choice Experiment" by John Buckle, Joaquin Marti, and Jody Sindelair. And you can find a link to that paper at link number one in the show notes. And John also wanted to share some literature related to the topic, and I've provided links to that literature in the show notes as well. The first paper in the micro series in this episode deals with health and the health of children and how that is impact, impacted by the availability of contraceptives. The authors use sharp, massive, and unexpected price increases of oral contraceptives, a product of a documented case of collusion, in a, as a natural experiment to estimate the impact of access to the pill on fertility and newborn health. The author's estimates suggest that due to the price hike for contraceptives, the weekly birth rate increased by 4%. They also show large effects on the number of children born to unmarried mothers, from mothers in their early 20s and to first-time mothers. Moreover, they find evidence of significant deterioration of newborn health as measured by the incidence of low birth weight and infant mortality. In addition, the authors document a disproportional increase of 27% in the weekly miscarriage and stillbirth rates. The authors interpret that as manifestations of active efforts of termination in a country where abortion abortion was illegal. As the extra quote-unquote children reached school age, the authors find lower school enrollment rates and higher participation in programs for students with special needs. The title of the paper is The Children of the Missed Pill by Rao, Sarzosa, and Urzua, and you can find a link to the paper at link number two in the show notes. The next paper is also a health paper. It deals with the health of children. The authors observe that obesity among children is an important public health concern, and social networks may play a role in students' habits that increase the likelihood of being overweight. The authors examine data from South Korea middle schools, where students are randomly assigned to classrooms, and they exploit the variation in peer body mass index. The authors use the number of peer siblings as an instrument to account for endogeneity concerns and measurement error. They find that heavier peers increase the likelihood that a student is heavier. There is no spurious correlation for height. So in some sense, you could view the results of this paper as suggesting that there's some sort of uh, spread or contagion associated with um, obesity. There is no spurious correlation for height, as I mentioned earlier. The authors 
observed that public policy that targets obesity can have spillovers through social networks. The title of the paper is How Do Peers Influence BMI? Evidence from Randomly Assigned Classrooms in South Korea by Lim and Mir. And you can find a link to the paper at link number three in the show notes. The next paper is our third health economics paper. The author discusses how limited ability to assess patient risk of illness and predict treatment response may affect the welfare achieved by adherence to clinical practice guidelines and by decentralized clinical practice. The author explains why predictive ability has been limited and calls attention to imperfections in clinical judgment and questions and questionable methodological practices in the research that supports evidence-based medicine. The author discusses recent econometric research that can improve the ability to guideline developers and clinicians to predict patient outcomes. The author then applies decision th- basic decision theory to suggest reasonable decision criteria with well-understood welfare properties. The title of the paper is Improving Clinical Guidelines and Decisions Under Uncertainty by Charles Mansky, and you can find the paper at link number four in the show notes. next paper is also on health economics. More specifically, it focuses on long-term health insurance. The authors conduct a stated choice experiment where respondents are asked to rate various insurance products aimed to protect against financial risks associated with long-term care needs. They use exogenous variation in prices from the survey design and objective risks computed from a dynamic micro-simulation model. And they find these stated choice probabilities are used to predict market equilibrium for long-term care insurance. The authors then investigate, in turn, causes for the low observed take-up of long-term care insurance in Canada despite substantial residual out-of-pocket financial risk. They first find that awareness and knowledge of the product is low in the population. Although they find evidence of adverse selection, results suggest that plays a minimum, minimal role in what's happening. On the demand side, once respondents have been made aware of the risks, the authors find that demand remains low, in part because of misperceptions of risk. The title of the paper is Long-Term Care Insurance, Knowledge Barriers, Risk Perception, and Adverse Selection by Boyer, Dedander, Flouet, Leroux, and Michaud. And you can find the paper at link number five in the show notes. We now turn to a series of papers looking at labor economics. The first paper is a very interesting paper dealing with Uber, which is a service in which individuals and drivers, car drivers, run apps which match individuals to drivers and in some sense replace traditional forms of taxi services. The authors observe that ride-hailing drivers pay a proportion of their fares to the ride-hailing platform operator a commission-based compensation model used by many internet-mediated service providers. To Uber drivers, this commission is known as the Uber fee. By contrast, traditional taxi drivers in most U.S. cities make a fixed payment independent of their earnings, usually a weekly or daily medallion lease, but keep every fair dollar net of expenses. The authors assess these compensation models from a driver's point of view using an experiment that offered random samples of Boston Uber drivers opportunities to lease a virtual taxi medallion. Some drivers were offered a negative fee. Driver's labor supply response to our offers reveals a large intertemporal substitution elasticity on the order of 1.2. At the same time, this virtual lease program was undersubscribed. The authors used these results to compute the average compensation required to make drivers indifferent between ride-hailing and a traditional taxi compensation contract. The results suggest that ride-hailing drivers gain considerably from the opportunity to drive without leasing. The title of the paper is Uber vs. Taxi, a Driver's Eye View, view excuse me, by Angrist, Caldwell, and Hall, and you can find the paper at link number 6 in the show notes. The next paper is another labor paper. The authors use a field experiment to estimate the marginal value of non-work time, MVT, in other words, the value of leisure. During a national application process for phone survey and data entry positions, the authors randomly offered applicants alternative wage hour bundles. Job seeker choices over these bundles yield estimates for the MVT as a function of hours worked. These quantities trace out a labor supply relationship. 
As predicted by the conventional model of the allocation of time, the substitution effect is positive. In other words, the labor supply curve slopes upward. Individual labor supply is highly elastic at low hours and becomes more inelastic at higher hours. For unemployed job applicants, the opportunity cost of a full-time job due to lost leisure, household production, and other non-work activities is approximately 60% of their estimated market wage. A similar estimate is found when we re- the authors reproduce elements of this experiment in a nationally representative survey. The title of the paper is Labor Supply and the Value of Non-Work Time, Experimental Estimates from the Field by Mass and Palais, and you can find the paper at link number 7 in the show notes. The next paper analyzes the non-market benefits of education and ability. The authors use a dynamic model of educational choice, and they estimate returns to education that account for selection bias and sorting on gains. They then investigate a range of non-market outcomes, including incarceration, mental health, voter participation, trust, and participation in welfare. The authors find distinct patterns of returns that depend on the level of schooling and ability. College graduation decreases welfare use, lowers depression, and raises self-esteem more for less able individuals. The title of the paper is Non-Market Benefits of Education and Ability by Heckman and Humphreys and Vera Mendy, and you can find the paper at link number 8 in the show notes. In another labor paper, an author describes a new policy that endows firms with limited duration virtual shares in their own workers' future realized earnings growth. The policy seeks to leverage employers to address a key challenge of the modern world, increasing worker skills well into adulthood. The author labels the policy Generalized Experience Ratings, or GER, because it builds on the more narrow experience rating long embodied in the U.S. unemployment insurance system. GER can be interpreted as a Peruvian tax and as a mandate alleviating an adverse selection problem. The author discusses many design issues and potential unintended consequences of this policy. The title of the paper is Altogether Now, Leveraging Firms to Increase Worker Productivity Growth by Hilger. In the next paper, the authors look at political economy. They study the behavior of ethical voters in multi-candidate elections. They consider two of the most widely used electoral rules around the world, the plurality rule and the majority runoff rule. The model delivers crisper predictions than those of the pivotal voter model. There are two types of equilibria, one, the sincere voting equilibrium, and two, Duverger's law equilibrium, in which two candidates attract all the votes. They provide... Excuse me, they prove that an equilibrium always exists and that it is unique for a broad range of parameter values. Moreover, the sincere voting equilibrium never coexists with a Duverger's law equilibrium. The authors also identify the features of an election that favor sincere voting. They compare plurality and majority runoff and they find that the incentives to vote sincerely are stronger under the latter. The results are consistent with the findings of the empirical literature studying strategic voting under plurality and runoff rules. The title of the paper is Ethical Voting in Multi-Candidate Elections by Bhutan and Ogden, and you can find the paper at link 10 in the show notes. We now turn to two papers which look at the economics of information. In the first of these two papers, <clears throat> the author, excuse me, the author observes that limits on consumer attention give firms incentives to manipulate prospective buyers' allocation of attention. In the paper, the author models such attention manipulation and shows that it limits the ability of disclosure regulation to improve consumer welfare. Competitive information supply from firms competing for attention can reduce consumer knowledge by causing information overload. A single firm subjected to a disclosure mandate may deliberately induce such information overload to obfuscate financially relevant information or engage in product complexification to bound consumers' financial literacy. Thus, disclosure rules that would improve welfare for agents without attention limitations can prove ineffective for consumers with limited attention. The title of the paper is Attention Manipulation and Information Overload by Person, and you can find the paper at link number 11 in the show notes. 
next paper deals with the economics of immigration. The authors observe that the H-1B program allows skilled foreign-born individuals to work in the United States. The annual quota on new H-1B visa issuance fell from 195,000 to 65,000 for employees of most firms in fiscal year 2004. However, the cap did not apply to new employees of colleges, universities, and nonprofit research institutions. In addition, existing H-1B holders seeking to renew their visa were also exempt from the quota. The authors use a triple difference approach and find that cap restrictions significantly reduced the employment of new H-1B workers in for-profit firms relative to what would have occurred in an unconstrained environment. The restriction also redistributed H-1Bs toward computer-related occupations, Indian-born workers, and firms using the H-1B program intensively. The title of the paper is The Effect of the H-1B Quota on Employment and Selection of Foreign-Born Labor by Meta, Ortega, Perry, Shi, and Sparber. And you can find the paper at link number 12 in the show notes. We next have a paper on the economics of education. The author observes that school choice may lead to improvements in school productivity if parents' choices reward effective schools and punish ineffective ones. The mechanism requires parents to choose schools based on casual, excuse me, causal effectiveness rather than peer characteristics. The authors study relationships among parent preferences, peer quality, and causal effects on outcomes for applicants to New York City's centralized high school assignment mechanism. The authors use applicants' rank-ordered choice lists to measure preferences and to construct selection-corrected estimates of treatment effects on test scores in high school graduation. They find that parents prefer schools that enroll high-achieving peers, and these schools generate larger improvements in short- and long-run student outcomes. The authors find no relationship between preferences and school effectiveness after controlling for peer quality. The title of the paper is Do Parents Value School Effectiveness by Abdullah Kuralagu Pathak Schellenberg, and Walters, and you can find the paper at link 13 in the show notes. We next turn to a paper on intellectual property. The authors study the matching of patent applications to examiners at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. They use test statistics originally developed to identify industry agglomeration, and they find strong evidence that examiners specialize in particular technologies even within relatively homogeneous art units. Examiner specialization is more pronounced in the biotechnology and chemistry fields, and less in computers and software. There is no evidence that certain examiners specialize in applications that have greater importance or broader claims. More specialized examiners have a low grant rate and produce a large, excuse me, a larger narrowing of claim scope during the examination process. The title of the paper is Patent Examiner Specialization by Raihi and Simcoe, and you can find the paper at link number 14 in the show notes. Let's turn to the second paper on information economics. The authors study an ambiguity-averse agent with uncertainty about income dynamics who chooses what aspects of the income process to learn about. The agent chooses to learn most about income dynamics at the very lowest frequencies, which have the greatest effect on utility. Deviations of consumption from the full information benchmark are then largest at high frequencies, so consumption responds strongly to predictable changes in income in the short run, but is closer to a random walk in the long run. So this is a pretty major revision to theories of consumption like the permanent income hypothesis and that sort of thing. Whereas ambiguity aversion typically leads agents to act as though shocks are more persistent than the truth, endogenous learning here eliminates that effect. The title of the paper is Directed Attention in Non-Parametric Learning by Du Becker and Nathanson, and you can find the paper at link number 15 in the show notes. next paper looks at venture capital financing. The authors develop a valuation model for venture capped, excuse me, venture capital backed companies and apply it to 135 U.S. unicorns. Okay, these are not fantasy animals with a horn, but they are um, companies primarily in the IT industry with very, very high valuations. 
The authors value unicorns using financial terms from legal filings and find reported unicorn post-money valuation average 50% above fair value. So they're overvalued, with 15 being more than 100% above. Reported valuations assume all shares are as valuable as the most recently issued preferred shares. After adjusting for these valuation-inflating terms, almost one-half, or 65 out of 135, of unicorns lose their unicorn status. The title of the paper is Squaring Venture Capital Valuations with Reality by Gornal and Strebulaev, and you can find the paper at link number 17 in the show notes. The next paper is also an investment paper. The authors observe that two innovations in the structural investment model go a long way in explaining value and momentum jointly. Firm-level investment returns are constructed from firm-level accounting variables and are then aggregated to the portfolio level to match with portfolio-level stock returns. In addition, current assets form a separate production input besides physical capital. The model fits well the value, momentum, investment, and profitability premiums jointly and partially explains the positive stock investment return correlations. However, the model fails to explain momentum crashes. The title of the paper is Does the Investment Model Explain Value and Momentum Simultaneously by Goncalves, Zhu, and Zhang? And you can find the paper at link number 18 in the show notes. The next paper is in the field of agricultural economics. The authors seek to explain the U-shaped relationship between farm productivity and farm scale. The initial fall in productivity as farm size increases from its lowest levels and the continuous upward trajectory as scale increases after a threshold. This is observed across the world and in low-income countries. The authors show that the existence of labor market transaction costs can explain why the smallest farms are most efficient, slightly larger farms least efficient, and larger farms as efficient as the smallest farms. The authors use data from the Indian ICRASAT VLS panel survey, and they find evidence consistent with these conditions. And the results suggest that there are too many farms. The title of the paper is... Are there too many farms in the world? Low labor market transaction costs, machine capacities, and optimal farm size by Foster and Rosenzweig. And you can find the paper at link number 19 in the show notes. The next paper is about completing taxes. The paper uses a quasi-experimental design and a novel identification strategy to estimate the cost of filing income taxes. First, the author uses U.S. income tax returns and observes how taxpayers choose between itemizing deductions and claiming the standard deduction. Taxpayers forego tax savings to avoid compliance costs, which provides a revealed preference estimate of the compliance cost of itemizing. The author finds that this cost increases with income and that is consistent with a higher opportunity cost of time for richer households. Second, the author uses the estimates and estimates of the time required to file other schedules and then estimates the cost of filing federal income taxes. The author finds that this cost has been increasing since the, since the 1980s and has reached 1.2% of GDP in the most recent years. The title of the paper is How Taxing is Tax Filing? Using Revealed Preferences to Estimate Compliance Costs by Benzarti. And you can find the paper at link number 20 in the show notes. We now turn to the macro series of papers. The first paper looks at sentiment and U.S. economic activity, a question that goes all the way back to Keynes and the idea of animal spirits. The authors examine whether sentiment influences aggregate demand by studying the relationship between the Michigan Survey of Expectations concerning national output growth and future economic activity at the state level, the author's instrument for local sentiments with political outcomes. This instrument is strong in the first stage, and the author's results confirm a positive relationship between sentiments and future state economic activity. This result is robust to a battery of sensitivity tests. The title of the paper is Sentiments in Economic Activity, Evidence from U.S. States by Benhabib and Spiegel. And you can find this paper at link number 21 in the show notes. The next paper is an economic history paper which looks at inequality. 
The paper provides the first quantitative assessment of Jamaican standards of living and income inequality around 1774. To this purpose, the authors compute welfare ratios for a range of occupations and build a social table. The authors find that the slave colony had extremely high living costs, which rose steeply during the American War of Independence, and low standards of living, particularly for its enslaved population. The results also show that due to its extreme poverty surrounding extreme wealth, Jamaica was the most unequal place in the pre-modern world. Furthermore, all of these characteristics applied to the free population alone. The title of the paper is The Social Implications of Sugar, Living Costs, Real Incomes, and Inequality in Jamaica circa 1774 by Bernard, Panza, and Williamson. And you can find the paper at link number 22 in the show notes. The next paper looks at the issue of information externalities and trade. The authors argue that existence of public goods does not necessarily imply market failure, and they illustrate this point in the context of international trade. An influential hypothesis states that export pioneers are too few relative to social optimum because the first exporter's action creates an information public good for all subsequent exporters. The hypothesis has been invoked to justify certain types of government interventions. We note, however, that such market failure requires two... I'm sorry. The authors note, however, that such market failure requires two inequalities to hold simultaneously. The authors propose a structural estimation framework to evaluate the hypothesis and estimate the parameters based on the customs data of Chinese electronics exports. The author's key finding is that missing pioneers are a low probability event for large countries but can be a serious problem for small economies. The title of the paper is Sizing Up Market Failures in Export Pioneering Activities by Wei, Wei, and Zhu. And you can find the paper at link number 23 in the show notes. The next paper is about tariff bargaining, a a very important issue these days. The authors provide an equilibrium analysis of the efficiency properties of bilateral tariff negotiations in a three-country, two-good general equilibrium model of international trade when transfers are not feasible. The authors consider weak rule settings characterized by two cases, a no-rules case in which discriminatory tariffs are allowed, and an MFN-only case in which negotiated tariffs must be non-discriminatory. The authors allow for a general family of political, economic, country welfare functions and assess efficiency relative to these welfare functions. For the no-rules case with discriminatory tariffs, the authors consider simultaneous bilateral tariff negotiations and utilize the Nash-Nash solution concept. They establish a sense in which the resulting tariffs are inefficient and too low, so that excessive liberalization occurs from the perspective of the three countries. For one important situation, the authors establish a sense in which the resulting tariffs are inefficient and too high when evaluated when evaluated relative to the unrestricted set of efficient tariffs. The authors also compare the negotiated tariffs under the MFN rule with the MFN constrained efficiency frontier, and they find that negotiated tariffs are generally inefficient. Finally, they illustrate the findings with a numerical analysis. The title of the paper is National Nash Tariff Bargaining with and Without MFN by Bagwell, Steger, and Urukugulu. And you can find the paper at link number 24 in the show notes. The next paper is about development macroeconomics. The authors observe that in most developing countries, there is a large gap in average consumption per capita between urban and rural areas. One appealing interpretation of this gap, the authors observe, is that it reflects a spatial equilibrium in which the higher consumption levels of urban areas are offset by lower non-monetary amenities. The authors then document how non-monetary amenities vary across space within 20 developing countries. Amenities vary substantially across locations within countries and can be carefully measured with highly comparable data. The authors find that in almost all countries and for almost all measures, the quality of these amenities is non-decreasing in population density. In addition, net internal migration flows are directed toward denser areas in every country. 
They suggest that developing countries are undergoing a reallocation of workers to densely populated areas, consistent with many models of structural change, but inconsistent with models that assume a simple static spatial equilibrium. The title of the paper is "In Search of a Spatial Equilibrium in the Developing World" by Gallen, Kirchberger, and Lagakos, and you can find the paper at link number twenty-five in the show notes. The last two papers in the macro series deal with fiscal policy. In the first paper, the authors study a fiscal policy model in which the government is present biased towards public spending. Society chooses a fiscal rule to trade off the benefit of committing the government to not overspend against the benefit of granting it flexibility to react to privately observed shocks to the value of spending. Unlike prior work, the authors characterize rules that are self-enforcing. The government must prefer to comply with the rule. They also show that the optimal rule is a maximally enforced deficit limit, which, if violated, leads leads to the worst punishment for the government. Punishment takes the form of a maximally, maximally enforced surplus limit that incentivizes overspending. Fiscal discipline is restored when the government respects it. The title of the paper is "Fiscal Rules and Discretion Under Self-Enforcement" by Halleck and Yared, and you can find the paper at link number twenty-six in the show notes. And the last paper in the macro st- series has to do with taxation of capital. The authors observe that a vast theoretical literature in public finance has studied the question of the de- desirability of capital taxation. Distinct from questions of the optimality of taxing wealth is whether it is politically feasible. The authors use a survey on Amazon's Mechanical Turk. They provide subjects with a set of hypothetical individuals' incomes and wealth, and elicit subjects' preferred absolute tax bill for these individuals. Their regression results yield roughly linear desired tax rates on income of about 14%. Respondents suggested tax rates indicate positive desired wealth taxation. The authors find that subjects' implied tax rate on wealth is 3% when the source of wealth is inheritance, far higher than the 0.8% rate when wealth is from savings. The title of the paper is "Do Americans Want to Tax Capital?" Evidence from online surveys by Fisman, Gladstone, Kuziemeko, and Nadu, and you can find the paper at link number twenty-seven in the show notes. This has been Frontiers of Economic Research. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week, where my author discusses the topic of personalized medicine. Music